Well, good morning. Great to see you guys. Welcome to uh, our first Sunday of Advent. Uh, we are we are really excited about uh, these next few weeks. As we mentioned last week, we're going to be uh, working through the first three chapters of Revelation as part of our uh, Advent experience. And uh, so, more about that in just a moment. Um, I'm sure you've celebrated Advent a number of times, and, and so you probably know that the word is really pointing to the idea of an arrival. And as, as far as church history is concerned, the church uh, kind of had a two-part idea of Advent. They were certainly looking forward to uh, the return of Christ, but they were looking backward to his first coming and uh, what we celebrate as Christmas. So both ideas were in mind, and in both instances, there was this sense of waiting. So Advent has this idea of anticipation, and I've always appreciated kind of the picture of a child like, you know, pressed up against the glass of a window waiting for mom and dad to get home. There we are, right? That, that is Advent 2023, uh, waiting for the arrival well, as the church, um, we are celebrating Christ's first arrival, but we are looking forward to uh, the return that he promised. And the reason that we chose Revelation is because it is a letter to a waiting church. But before it was to a waiting church, it was to a waiting apostle, the last apostle. And I want us to kind of join him for just a moment. I want you to imagine uh, John, who penned this letter. Um, I just want you to imagine what it was like for him to receive it. Uh, first, uh, Revelation 1, 9 through 11 says this, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So when John uh, wrote this, it would have been about the mid-90s and he would have probably been in his 90s. So just keep in mind that that's 60 years after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ during which, so he was present for that, he was told that Jesus was going to come back. So now we're 60 years later. All of the apostles are dead, martyred. Jerusalem, destroyed, 70 AD, it's gone. Nero and Domitian, two of the emperors of Rome, have launched a violent persecution of the church. It is horrific. You can read about it. The things that they did to people just simply because they believed in Christ. That's John's condition. Those are his circumstances. And I want you to imagine it's Saturday night and he's about to lay his head down for yet another day and, and maybe wondering, could tomorrow be the day? Could he finally come back 
after all that I have endured, goes to sleep, and then Sunday morning, this is what he receives. Revelation 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Don't you know that was a huge encouragement to the last apostle as he was waiting for the return of his savior. That, that blessing in verse three is one of seven blessings. I wanna encourage you to read through this letter at some point. And uh, each of those are an encouragement and testify to the power that this letter has in the life of a believer as we do read it, as we listen to it, as we apply it to our lives, we are blessed maybe beyond expectation. There is a mention here that uh, things were to take place soon, that says the time was near, and I can totally understand if you're kind of gazing at your watch saying, you know, it's been a minute. 2,000 years of minutes, and he still hasn't come back. What, what's with the delay? And I would point you to 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10. This will help us put this waiting idea into perspective, God's perspective. Peter wrote this, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a 1,000 years. In a thousand years as one day, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But be assured of this, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter wrote that inspired by the Holy Spirit, but full of faith that that was true. And the revelation bears it out. It tells us how what Peter said would come to pass will come to pass. So a great word of encouragement. We see there that this is called the revelation of Jesus Christ. Commentators will kind of look at that a couple of ways. Is it the, relation, is it the revelation of or from Jesus Christ that he is giving to the churches, or is it about Jesus Christ? I would say I think it's both. I think we find some of the most breathtaking descriptions of Jesus anywhere in our Bible in this letter. So it certainly is about him, but it's also about his program to accomplish the redemptive plan of God in the course of history. This letter comes to John and to the church then and now 
as a source of great comfort and encouragement amid the trials of living in a sin-wrecked world at war with God. I don't know what your experience has been like as a Christian. Um, Most of the time when I was around conversations or preaching or whatever that related to the book of Revelation, it typically was Armageddon. Like that was the point, was to scare us enough to get our lives straight before Jesus comes back. And there are certainly some cautions and warnings in this letter that we should heed, but this letter is coming to a persecuted church to strengthen them in the midst of the fight. This is a sweet letter of hope. It is an encouragement of accountability, but it is far more than that. And I hope in these next few weeks that you will feel a great sense of encouragement. That um, even the title Revelation comes from the word apocalypse. And when I say the word apocalypse, what imagery comes to mind? Armageddon, right? Of course. No, uh, the word apocalypse means to reveal, to show. So God chose to show his church how he would bring all of history to a redemptive end to give them hope. So it is a beautiful letter to a waiting church. I want to mention that there are a few ways that um, people have interpreted this book throughout history. I am giving you a very, very abbreviated synopsis of this. I know some of you have done a lot of reading and consideration, and that's great. Um, But food for thought, four basic lenses through which to interpret this book. The first is an idealist perspective, and that basically interprets this book as an allegory, primarily driven by symbols that all represent the overall struggle between good and evil, which will eventually be won by good. So again, that's a generality. There are many versions of the idealist perspective as with these others that I'm gonna share with you, but that's just a good way to sum it up an allegorical portrayal of the battle. The preterist view basically looks backwards and says that all that we find in Revelation or almost all of it was fulfilled around the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So it ties a lot of the imagery and the events that are mentioned here to that moment in history. So they would say that it has been fulfilled. Third, the historicist view. That is a symbolic presentation of all of church history. What's interesting is those who hold to this view, wherever you find them in history, they are aligning the events happening around them to the book, which means it has to be repeatedly revised to kind of keep it current with whatever's happening in the world. So it's a challenging perspective because the same things in history don't continue to line up with the book. It keeps kind of moving around there. So that's a tough one. And then the futurist view, that is uh, the prophecies in Revelation point forward to a time yet to be realized, 
but the expectation is that those events that are mentioned here will be fulfilled in a very real and concrete way. So, again, do some reading. Uh, People land all over the place in terms of these views. We would take, in some ways, a blend between the futurist and the idealist, appreciating all of the symbols that are mentioned in the book and yet believing that it does point forward to a day when all of history will come to its predestined conclusion. All right, so back to the letter. I mentioned that there is a spectacular description of Jesus here that comes before a lot of the future-oriented imagery. And so I wanna mention that And then let's just keep in mind, let's kind of go back to the Apostle John. What would give him more hope than a glorified picture of his Savior? And that's exactly what he gives us beginning in verse 5. Look at the descriptions there. Uh, Again, you can go back and study every one of these phrases, and I think it will give you great encouragement. He is the faithful witness, as we know, even unto death. The firstborn from the dead, he is our hope for resurrection. The ruler of kings on earth, he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, right? All of creation answers to him. He is the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. He is the one who has made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. Think about that. Not only did he save us, he involves us in his redemptive mission that he is accomplishing all around us throughout history. And then finally, we're reminded again in verse 7, he is the one who is coming with the clouds. He will return just as he promised John is receiving all of this from the Holy Spirit, and then he writes in Revelation 1, 12 and 13, says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Uh, The reference to the Son of Man is an echo of the terminology that was given to Jesus in Daniel 7 and Daniel 10. Uh, Certainly a divine attribution there. He is pointing to Jesus as God. And it says he is standing among lampstands. We find out in verse 20 that that is a reference to the church. So think about it. It's great imagery. The church is a lampstand. What does a lampstand do? It elevates light. It is meant to bring light into dark places so that the truth can be seen. So here we have a church elevating the light of truth and within the church is standing Jesus, the light of the world. We are light bearers in a dark world and our Savior stands among us. Uh, It seems to me that um, John might have remembered the last phrase that uh, Jesus said to he and the other disciples when he gave them the Great Commission. Remember that? Go into all the world, make disciples, all of that. And then he says at the very end, behold, I am with you always when? to the end of the age. 
when all of this gets fulfilled, I'll be with you every step of the way. And that's what John sees. He sees the Savior standing among the church. The portrait continues. If you read ahead, several different references here, all symbolic, all helping us to appreciate the fullness of Christ. He's wearing a long robe and a golden sash, which would point to his priesthood. He is the great high priest ministering within the church. He has white hair, which would reflect perfect wisdom, not the wisdom of the world, perfect wisdom. Eyes like flame of fire, omniscient vision, feet of burnished bronze, a pure and everlasting dominion that has been refined by fire. A voice like the roar of many waters, absolute authority in all that he says. We're told that he holds seven stars in his right hand. Um, Those stars are associated with what's called messengers or angels. There's a lot of speculation around what exactly that references. And in my own study, I felt like one of the best descriptions was these seven churches that we're going to look at each had a leader. And those leaders were called messengers or even angels, sent ones. And the comforting part, given the context of incredible persecution, is that Jesus is holding those seven leaders in his right hand, caring for them as they care for the churches that they lead. It's a beautiful picture of provision and preservation. Also, he has a sharp two-edged sword from his mouth Uh, Keep in mind, this is symbolic, so Jesus isn't walking around with, you know, a broadsword swinging around out of his mouth, right? This is uh, emblematic of the truth that he speaks. It's an invincible truth. It cuts down into the deepest part of humanity and reveals what is right and good. And then lastly, his face is like the sun shining at full strength, radiant glory. It's hard to imagine what that would look like. We can look at the sun, right? And it's a bit overwhelming, isn't it, right? You can't just look directly at the sun. You'd have to squint or or even turn away. Obviously, the, the glory of Christ would exceed that. But it gives you an idea. This is what John is looking at the fullest expression of the glory of Christ that he has ever witnessed in his life. And look how he responds. He says he fell at his feet as though dead. That's what happens in the presence of glory. But then, remember, comfort, encouragement. Look at what the Savior does, verse 17. Jesus laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Wouldn't that be a good word to one whose life is on the line each and every day simply because of what they believe? He says, write therefore the things that you have seen, 
those that are and those that are to take place after this. A word of revelation to the church. A word of revealing. This does provide, this last phrase provides a bit of a framework for understanding revelation. Things that you have seen, particularly around the person of Christ. Things that are the letters to the churches and their circumstances. Uh, encouragements to them, we'll get to that in a minute, and then those things that are to take place from chapters four through the end of the book, all pointing forward to the fulfillment of God's plan. So with all of that, let's look at this message to the seven churches. Uh, These seven churches are uh, located in what would be modern-day Turkey. Remember, uh, John is on the island of Patmos, which is Uh, a bit off the west coast of this same area. He would have been associated with, perhaps even leading at some degree, uh, these seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These churches are located, as you can see on this map, in a bit of a a circle if you kind of carry it back over, and they're all connected by a Roman postal route. So delivering this letter to these seven churches would have followed right along with uh, the way communication was transported in that day. Um, I mentioned this earlier, I think, or maybe not, but um, the number seven represents the idea of completeness biblically. So you're going to see it come up again and again and again throughout the book of Revelation, but here seven churches are mentioned, which means that they are literal churches. They're going to receive a literal letter from, from God to them, but because of the number seven, they represent the universal church as a whole. So they are representative as much as they are literal recipients. You can think of it this way, the book of Revelation was written and sent to them, but it is for us. Does that make sense? It it, it spoke to them in a very real way that they would have understood and been able to apply right then. But then it has this universal quality about it that uh, in verse three I mentioned earlier, the blessing that any who read, listen, pay attention, apply, the words of this book, regardless of where and when in the course of history, they will be blessed as a result of that. So uh, during this Advent series, again, we're going to look at the first three chapters and we're, we're calling it the good, the bad, and the victor. So in each of these letters to these churches, you're going to find some common features, not in every single letter, but Across the board, you're going to see commendations, affirmation, encouragement for what the churches are doing well. You're going to find correction, which is to say, hey, here's some places where you are off track and you need to make an adjustment. And then in all seven letters, we find the phrase, the one who conquers. There's an assurance given to all of those who remain faithful despite the incredible hardship that they are experiencing as followers of Christ. That's our three-week series. So today we're gonna focus on 
commendation, and it's signaled by the phrase, I know. You'll see that over and over again. This is actually a great kind of Bible study uh, tactic is to go through and look for repeated words or phrases, and you see again, over and over again, this phrase, I know. And I did think it's reassuring to be seen by our Savior in the midst of our suffering, isn't it? And this isn't seen in the sense of like from a distance. Remember, he's walking among us. And I would call this, it's probably kind of redundant, but omniscient intimacy in the midst of our waiting. Like he sees it all and he is close and draws us close. So in other words, he knows it all. And even while knowing it all, He loves us, he cherishes us, he protects us, provides for us, and calls us to more. So encouraging. Now, in most of these letters, when he says he knows, he is speaking of the good that he is aware of. Uh, It reminded me of a a little parenting adjustment Kimberly and I made uh, early on. We didn't have a clue what to do. We were figuring out every step of the way. And we initially thought, as parents, if we just point out to our children when they're not doing stuff right, then they'll know they're not doing stuff right, and they'll start doing it right, and that'll be good for everybody, right? (laughs) Kind of discouraging for them and for us. And uh, we heard this phrase from Dennis and Barbara Rainey that really changed our whole approach. They said, catch your kids doing stuff right. So we started paying a whole lot more attention to what they were doing well as we were to what they were doing wrong. And we were affirming that and celebrating that and encouraging that. And you'd be amazed at how fun our house became, right? Honestly, I think that's what the Savior is doing here. He is catching these churches doing stuff right. That's not all that he's doing but he is making a point to recognize where they are in alignment with his heart and his word. And so with that in mind, let's look at these commendations of a few of the churches. In Ephesus, um, Revelation 2, 2 through 3 says this, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Um, Ephesus is probably the most prominent of all the cities and the churches that are mentioned in the Revelation. And in Ephesus, there there was a lot of pagan worship going on, not the least of which was the imperial cult, which was really directing worship toward the emperor. And that was something that Domitian made a big deal of. And so much so that if you didn't worship the emperor, you were in trouble. Um, Domitian gave Ephesus the title of temple guardian. So all the more important that all of its citizens would pay homage to um, the emperor. So to fail to do that kind of puts you at odds with the city. 
and certainly with Rome. And yet the Ephesian church, we're told here, stood firm. Even while pressured to make concessions, to uh, go in other directions, um, they resisted that doctrinal drift. We're going to hear about a heresy that was spreading among these churches, uh, the heresy of the Nicolaitans. And basically, again, this is a general summary, but they were given to sexual immorality and idolatry. And the general sense was they would come into the church and they would affirm all that the church was doing. They would applaud it. You guys are doing great. Keep it up. But there's a whole lot more that you can do or should do. I mean, feel the freedom. Kind of mix it in. Think of syncretism, like mixing stuff that shouldn't be mixed. That's what the Nicolaitans were doing. And this church stood against that and rejected the idea that they could practice things that God had prohibited um, even while doing a lot of other things well. First Timothy 3.15 says, the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. And the Ephesian church took this to heart and they were commended for it. So the word, I put a word with all of these churches that I have for Ephesus is conscientious conscientious. Second is Smyrna. Smyrna is one of two churches, so Philadelphia is the other, that receive a commendation and no correction. So wouldn't you love to be in one of those two churches? They got it all going on. Uh, Smyrna, this is what was said to them, Revelation 2.9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. The church of um, Smyrna is commended for how they have endured tribulation, poverty, and slander. But we're given an idea of how they've done that. They have focused their attention on their spiritual prosperity. So in some ways, it reminded me, uh, you know, the widow... The widow's gift where Jesus is sitting with his disciples and and it says that she came with the least. She only had two little coins. But Jesus said that she gave more than everyone because she gave out of her lack, not out of her abundance. That, That reminds me of the church in Smyrna. They had very little. They were under great pressure and difficulty and yet they brought the prosperity that they had in Christ and, uh, and they gave it all. So the, the word that I use there is content. They were content with what the Lord had given them and uh, remained faithful as a result. Pergamum, Revelation 2.13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, assuming that it's there. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. I, I, I think it's so difficult for us to appreciate what it would be like if someone among our community of faith were just taken out in the street one day and gunned down simply because they're a Christ follower. Like, we would lose our minds, wouldn't we? We, we think, you can't do that. 
They did it all the time. That was a way of life for them. They woke up every day wondering, today could be the day. This church saw one of their own, Antipas, killed for his faith, and yet they remained firm. One of Satan's clear strategies is to make life so difficult and painful that we would eventually just give in in order to gain relief. But they resisted that. They maintained their witness faithfully in the face of satanic threat, even while watching one of their own lose his life. So I, the word I put for Pergamum is consecrated. That, that's the idea of kind of giving it all and setting one apart uh, for the purpose of faithfulness. Uh, Thyatira, Revelation 2.19, they receive a commendation. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Um, this city is the least important of the seven that are mentioned. You might think of it as a commercially blue-collar kind of community. They took a lot of pride in their trades, and each of their trades was associated with religious practice, and so all of that was integrated. Um, each trade would have had its own God, and their idea is that you're faithful to God and he blesses your work. But... They expect the community to be supportive of that idea. So just again, imagine you're a Christian and you believe there is one God and worshiping any other gods would be idolatry and yet you're a part of this community and part of the trades. That's the challenge. That's the stretch. Um, it looks as though based upon their love, their faith, their service and their patient endurance and work that was excellent. Um, they were reputable. That's the word I use for them. I, I would expect that they had a good reputation with the community. Um, this is one of those churches that's going to get a commendation and a correction, and their correction is going to be allowing uh, th the impact of the community on them even while having a great reputation with their community. And man, I thought that's one of those that we ought to pay attention to today. Here in the United States, we love having a great reputation, right? We even point to success that churches that are bursting at the seams and everybody loves, like everybody, that seems like a good thing. But is it? When you're standing for the truth, in a world at war with God, I wonder if there is a point at which you're gonna lose your popularity and you're gonna seem at odds with the world. But Thyatira is commended for their love, faith, service, and endurance. Finally, as I mentioned, Philadelphia is the other church that is commended without any correction. And the description is in verse 8 of chapter 3. Uh, the Savior says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word 
and have not denied my name. Um, I just think it's interesting that this church, that according to the description, you know, they don't have a lot of power, not a lot of prestige. Uh, there's nothing spectacular about it, and yet they are staying faithful. They are tenaciously holding fast to Christ and his word, and he says he's opened a door for them. And that idea, I think, is he has opened the door to the kingdom, and they took him at his word, and they walked right through, by grace, through faith, and then never looked back. What a great inspirational picture of one that had very little and yet did so much with it. So the word that I put on uh, Philadelphia is dependent. Um, When we have very little, uh, often we are required to depend in ways that we wouldn't if we had a lot. And yet they were faithful to do that. So those are five of the seven churches. We'll hit all of them at one point or another over these three weeks. But there is this other phrase that shows up in each of the letters, and that's going to kind of usher us into our so what for today. In every letter it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, not to just these seven churches, but to us. So what is it? that the Spirit would say to you today, as you look at the commendations of these churches, what might be some things that you would want to glean from that for your own life and your own walk with Christ? I want to specifically ask you to consider a couple of questions. First of all, given the spectacular vision of Jesus given at the beginning in chapter 1, How does your vision of Jesus compare to what John described? How vivid is the glory of Christ in your frame of mind? Secondly, which of these commendations could be made of you? Or which do you wish was more evident in your life? Conscientious, content? consecrated, reputable, or dependent. Take a moment and uh, ask the Lord to highlight what you need to hear and apply from this message today. Father God, uh, thank you for your presence with us in the waiting. Thank you for this beautiful, powerful letter 
that you gave to us so that we could have hope uh, while we look to your return. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom, discernment, understanding as we read uh, its words. And Lord, would you, uh, would you make us into the church that you really want us to be at this time in history? Help us to be faithful, resilient as we face the the challenges of life in a sin-wrecked world. Thank you for your grace that is sufficient and the love of Christ that is uh, sweeter than we could ever imagine. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.